Well, it has been several weeks since I have been here to teach and it is truly great to be here with you this morning to share from the scriptures with you. But before I do, I want to express my gratitude to our leadership team and to our staff here at Cross Connection Church. It is a tremendous privilege to pastor this church. I have had the privilege of pastoring Cross Connection Church for nearly 15 years, and I'm so grateful for what we have here at this church. This summer is the first time that I have taken any real extended break or time off in all of those 15 years. And I have had absolutely zero concerns about what has been going on here from week to week. We have just a wonderful team of pastors and leaders who um, help lead this church and it is a great blessing. Also taking some time off has been very refreshing. The last two and a half years have been a little bit tiring for me and I think for everybody. So uh, a break has been kind of a good thing for my family and for me. I've also been very blessed and encouraged by the teaching that we have been receiving in the book of Nehemiah over the last several weeks. Pastor Mark taught for several weeks and then my good friend, Pastor David Guzik was here a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Garrett last week. In a couple of weeks, we're gonna hear from Pastor Jason and then from a really good friend of mine, Lance Ralston, who pastors Calvary Chapel in Oxnard. He'll be down here at the end of this month to share from the scriptures as well. So it has been, really good to be encouraged and built up and taught by some of the great teachers that we have here, but also some of my friends from elsewhere. So I've been really encouraged and blessed by that. And I hope that you have been encouraged as we have been going through the book of Nehemiah together. The story of Nehemiah is really a great story and one that I think is applicable for our times. I hope you have been seeing that as we've been studying through it together. As Pastor David Guzik shared a couple of weeks ago, this book, the book of Nehemiah, is fundamentally a story about a building project. And in some respect, every single one of us have been involved with a building project of one sort or another. Now, not every single person has been involved in actually building a house or building a building, but you've built something in your life, probably. You've built a life. You have built things when you did projects in school. You have built relationships in life. You've built a marriage if you are married and um, you've been building a family if you have a family. And anytime that we set out to build something, there are the tangibles and the intangibles, the knowns and the unknowns. There are the things that we are aware of when we are preparing to begin the project. And then there are the things that take us by surprise. And I'm sure that you've watched those remodel project shows on TV. And they're the shows where someone buys some house that they're gonna flip or they buy some project house that they're gonna be remodeling. And when they begin those shows, they always begin with kind of the architects and the engineers drawing up plans. And eventually those shows typically have like the design drawings and even 3D renderings of what it's gonna look like. Like they have these animations where you walk through the whole room and you see everything, what it's gonna look like. And then they, they establish the budget, they establish the schedule, the timetable. And so they, when they get to the point where they're getting ready to do the job, there are a lot of knowns. There's a lot of things that they already have planned. They have the, the design drawings, they have the 3D animations, they've got the furnishings that they're planning on putting in there, they've got a timetable, they've got a budget, they've got all those things that they already know. And then 
as is always the case, and it's kind of the structure of the way that those shows work. They've got to inject some drama, and the drama always comes when they begin opening up the walls, and all of a sudden, they're able to see the unknowns, the problem with the slab, or the reality that, that they've got to put in some new electronic or electrical kind of work, or the plumbing is bad. There, there's all the unknowns that, that add time to the schedule, they add money, you know, cost to the budget, they, they add all kinds of drama to the show. And it is the unknowns in life and in those shows that create the drama and make things take longer than we wanted them to take. And I think that sometimes, if you knew all of the unknowns ahead of time, then it's very possible that you would rethink whether or not you were going to set out on that project in the first place. It is the unknowns that create drama and extend time and add money to the budget, but it's also the unknowns that make it more likely that the big initiatives and projects will actually get done. Because had you known the unknowns, then you probably wouldn't have started the big, big project in the first place. And I know for me and for a lot of people that I've talked to over the last couple of years, COVID has been one of those huge unknowns that took all of us by surprise. And not just the virus itself, but the response to it by our policy and public health establishments and directors in our culture. It has been a long season of chaotic unknowns. And along the way, we have been trying to adjust and to regroup around all of the drama that has come. Now, when you begin a project, even with the prospect of unknown unknowns and the drama that will ensue or come from those unknown unknowns, what is it that causes us to begin to move forward on a project in the first place? What is it that makes us want to begin that project? I wanna to suggest to you today that it is a vision of what could be or what should be or what will be when everything is done. On the other side of all of the hard work, when we start a project, whether it's getting ready to go to school, you know, to get a degree, or it's you know, setting out to begin a relationship or to build a house or to remodel something or to begin a big project at work, there is kind of a vision of how things will be at the end. In the mind space of our imagination, we see a vision and it is that vision that compels us to go forward to engage with all of the tasks that will be there. Now, when you have that vision, there are tons of unknown unknowns. It's as if you're standing on a high mountaintop and you're able to see in the distance the high mountaintop that you want to get to, but then between you and that high mountaintop is a valley, and maybe that valley is covered by a whole bunch of fog and clouds. You're above the cloud line, so you cannot see all of the things that are in the valley, all the unknown unknowns. You, you know that there's going to be issues down there, but you don't know what those things are. You just see the vision of where you want to go. So the vision that we see is what things will be at the completion of the task. We see that off in the distance. That's what we want, and so we move in that direction, but we have no idea what's gonna happen in between where we are and, and what it's gonna be when we get there. So you see in your mind's eye, the room or the house is finished. You can see in your mind the paper or the project is complete. You see in your mind when you're beginning to start a family that that child that maybe you just see on an ultrasound image, that child, you see in your mind's eye them as a fully functioning adult one day. 
And this ability to see the end from the beginning or to imagine and envision something and then move toward its creation or its completion is in a huge way, it's what sets you and I apart from other life forms that we have here on Earth. As far as we can tell, animals do not imagine or envision future states and then architect everything or craft and build everything to move toward the completion of what they see in their mental image. They just don't do that. So in this, you are unique in creation and you are unique in creation because the scriptures make very clear, God who also envisions and then creates, he who is creator made you in his image and his likeness to be able to take the things that he has made and to create from those things as well. So we all, we all know that what is it that moves us and compels us forward to a task is to be able to envision in our minds something that we see at the end state and then to move in that direction. I was thinking about this this last week and uh, just thinking about that this in kind of recent happenings in my life and in my wife's life and in our family. Because four years ago, my wife, Andrea and I, we set out to do some things that we had thought about for a long time and talked about and prayed about for several years together and just independently. Andrea at the time, four years ago, was working as a critical care nurse. This is prior to COVID and all the craziness that she experienced in the ICU during COVID. But she was working as a critical care nurse. She had her bachelor's in nursing. But in the early part of 2018, she decided to begin the process of enrolling in graduate nursing courses, nurse practitioner programs, to move out of the ICU, to get out of the critical care unit. And when she started the process of looking into these different schools, you know, what schools were available, what are they going to cost, how long are they going to take, all this sort of stuff, as she started submitting those applications, it got me thinking as well that perhaps it was the time for me to look into some options for doing something similar and going to seminary to get my Master of Divinity degree. And so in August of 2018, both Andrea and I began these graduate programs, these master's programs. And when we did, we did so because we had a vision in our mind of being done with those things. Now, when we started, it seemed like the end of that was really, really far away. It seemed like, oh man, this is never going to come, especially when the first few weeks of that first semester started. But what is it that pushes you to set aside the time, to set aside the money, to you know, really work on all of these things to move in that direction? There is a vision of what it's gonna look like. And so we had in our mind's eye, a vision of looking to the other side, beyond the research and the classes and the study and all the papers that we'd have to write, all those things. We saw a vision of where we wanted to be when that whole thing was done. And we couldn't see all the intangibles there. And one of the biggest intangibles was COVID. So just like in the remodeling shows that we've all seen on TV, there has to be drama in the story or else the, the story just doesn't sell. People don't watch it. And COVID brought a lot of drama to your life to my life, to my family, as we were in the midst of this. And like so many of you, instantly, when all this stuff started back in 2020, March of 2020, um, we were not only, Andrea was not only working in the critical care unit, I was not only working here at the church and the other things that I do, but now all of a sudden, all the normal stuff of life 
shifted and changed, her work in the critical care unit got increasingly crazy. And then we have four kids and they no longer were going to school every single day. So they had to come home and now all of a sudden we are homeschooling our kids and we're trying to do all of our work and take care of our family and homeschool our kids and do the school sort of thing on the side. And it was kind of like extreme drama. And I think if we had known in August of 2018, the drama of 2020 and 2021, how crazy that was going to be, we might have thought differently about beginning the process. Like I said, if you knew all of the known unknowns when you started to set out to accomplish some sort of vision or task, you, you might put it on hold. You might say, nah, I'm not going to do that. Um, but when we started in 2018, we didn't see all that stuff. We just had a vision of being done with it. And in spite of all of the chaos and the drama and the hurdles, Andrea, thank God, she finished her degree last year in May. And I just finished mine this year in May. And so that's all done. And I just have to throw in that Pastor Garrett, who shared last week, he's been pressing forward doing the exact same thing at the same seminary. He'll finish his master's degree in December, which is, is awesome. He's been doing the very same thing. But, but again, it, at the beginning, when you start these things and you just see a vision of the finished state, if you knew everything that was going to happen in between where you are at the starting point and where you want to be at the end, you might not start the project because all of the things that are going to come, all the crazy drama, might, you might just say, no, nah, I don't want to deal with all of that. Now, I say all of that stuff as an introduction to where we are in the book of Nehemiah today. If you remember back in Nehemiah chapter 1, that Nehemiah, he prayed and he fasted for four, four and a half months. And as he prayed and he fasted, because he heard a report from his brothers who had been in Jerusalem, where the work in the city had been stalled. For nearly 100 years, it had been stalled. So the report comes back, things are not looking good, and Nehemiah is broken by all this. And he begins to pray, and he begins to fast for four and a half months. And it was during that four and a half month period that he saw a vision. He had in his mind's eye a vision of something happening there in Jerusalem. He saw a vision of a completed wall and a safely inhabited city there in Jerusalem that had not been the case for hundreds of years. And as he envisioned a safely inhabited Jerusalem, he begins in his mind to come up with and construct a plan. And eventually he's given the opportunity to implement his plan. And of course, as he begins to implement the plan, because we always start with that vision, that's what kind of begins us on the process of moving forward for a task. We see a vision of it completed in the future. As he starts that process, then we have the challenges, the hurdles, the setbacks, the drama. There's always challenges, hurdles, setbacks, and drama. You have to expect that those things will come. And that is what we have been looking at over the last several weeks. There were enemies that came against Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem. There were attacks and there were conspiracies and there were money problems, as Pastor David Guzik talked about a couple of weeks ago. And what was it that kept Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem moving forward through all of the challenges? Again, I suggest to you, it was a vision. You see, an optimistic vision of the future keeps us on track and moving forward through life's challenges and difficulties. We need to remember that that optimistic vision is really important. I think this is really key. And if you lose sight of that future, if your 
optimistic vision shifts, it is easier than you might think to become despairing and depressed. And there are some of you who are watching today who you've experienced that. You've gone through that kind of despair and depression where your optimistic vision shifts and now long, you no longer have that optimistic vision. So if your vision shifts and you encounter challenges and difficulties, the spiral downward can be pretty severe and swift. It can happen much quicker than we sometimes realize. And this is one of the reasons that I have encouraged you many times over the years to um, take a break, a fast, if you will, from social media and the co corporate news media, which I just want to say that here in the middle of the summer, 2022, it might be a great time for you to take that like mid-year fast from social media and the corporate news media. You see, the, the media that you and I are bombarded with every single day through Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and The Drudge Report and Real News, Real News or all these different media sources, that media that we are bombarded with every single day, it is crafted in such a way as to make us lose that optimistic vision of the future. It is pretty pessimistic and despairing when you look at all the horrific things that are happening right around us in our own community or in our nation, in the world. So it might be a great time to mute it or shut it off for a week or two or you know six or eight and just take a break from those things. And don't just mute it, but I wanna encourage you to replace it with something far better, something that will enrich and encourage your heart and soul and your mind. So replace the time that you would spend in social media and corporate news media, maybe just for a week with the scriptures, just spending some time in the scriptures. You see, one of the values that we have here at Cross Connection Church, and we have a list of kind of our values on our website, and, and I believe it's our first one, it says, we want everything that we do to be done with joy because we have an optimistic vision of the future. And that has been kind of my heart for a very long time, that we want to be a joy-filled people. When people see you, if you're a Christian, one of the things that they should see in you is joy because the fruit of the Spirit is, second one that is mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy. So when people see you, they should see that you are a person who's filled with joy. And I think that one of the greatest things that will increase our joy is that optimistic vision of the future. What is the optimistic vision of the future that we have from the scriptures? Well, ultimately, we'll talk about this more later. It, it is Jesus Christ ruling and reigning for eternity with a righteous reign. So, so that is our optimistic vision of the future. And so we want everything that we do to be done with joy because all the devastating things that could happen in this world, those things pale in comparison to the glory that shall be when Christ rules and reigns. The suffering of this present world is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. And even though we live in a world that is groaning and looking forward to the manifestation of the sons of God, the, the creation of God being fulfilled or fully redeemed, uh, even though we're in the midst of all that groaning and kind of groaning pains, if you will, we look forward to the coming of Christ. And this is so important that we work to maintain that optimistic vision of the future. And the best way to do that is to mute or shut off all the social media, corporate news media, and replace it for just a period of time with reading through the scriptures. So very important. Ultimately, as Christians, I just got to say it again, 
we have an optimistic vision of the future. And so if you look at the headlines from this last week, you are probably going to be pretty pessimistic and depressed. Mass shootings, increased inflation, rising gas prices, rising everything prices, rising interest rates, um, the beginnings of maybe a slowing housing market, slowing and hiring, politicians in disarray, war in Europe, tensions in Asia, and just challenging times that we are living in. I was thinking about this this last week, and as I was thinking about all the crazy headlines, I was reminded of the Psalm, uh, Psalm 46. Psalm 46 verse 1 says this. This is a good reminder in all the chaos that's going on in the world. Psalm 46 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the selling, swelling thereof. Selah. So think about that. That's what that word selah means, like pause. Think about it for a moment. Just imagine the world in total chaos and upheaval. It feels like things happening in our culture right now when you turn on the news. But in the midst of this, the psalmist says, as he's pausing and thinking about all the chaos in the world, he says this, verse four, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. So he sees a vision of the city of God in heaven, the holy place of the tabernacle of the most high, the dwelling place of God. God is in the midst of this city of God. She, the city of God, shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. Then he returns to the world. The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. There's that second pause. You have the pause after you're thinking about the world just in total chaos and disarray. And then the psalmist says, but wait, this is not all there is. God is at rest, at peace in the city of God. And then he pauses and he waits. And let's, let's think about that for a moment. It's a refocusing of our attention. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3 says, set your mind on things above. And this is what the psalmist is doing 3,000 years ago in Psalm 46. So he imagines, he sees, he envisions the city of God. And he says, think about that for a moment. Then verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. I love that last word, Selah. Just pause for a moment and think about that. Take some time this week when you would otherwise be reading the news, listening to the podcast news, listening to the TV or radio news, or, you know, scrolling, doom scrolling, as some people call it, through Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is. Set that aside. And that's all the heathen raging, the world in chaos. That's it. That'll make you pe pessimistic and upset and stressed and angry and frustrated and on edge. That'll make you all of those things. Set that aside and refocus. Set your mind on things above. And can I just say it again? We have an optimistic vision of the future. Be still and know that I am God. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That is the promise. One day, our Messiah and King, Jesus, he will rule and reign in righteousness. And this is why we pray. Just as he instructed us to pray in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11, what we call the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Maybe that just needs to be our communal together prayer right now. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in the month of Kislev, Nehemiah began to pray right around what we would call November, December. He receives word in the winter or late fall, early winter about the, the problems. He gets the report on Twitter. He gets the, the quick little news thing from, you know, real clear news. He gets the news blurb about what's happening there in Jerusalem. And he is depressed. He is brokenhearted. He is distressed. And in that month, he begins to pray. And he prayed for four and a half months. And as he prayed and fasted and he sought the Lord, Nehemiah saw a vision. He saw a vision of a safely inhabited and rebuilt Jerusalem. And in his mind's eye, he could see defensive walls rebuilt around the city. And then we read where we are today, where Pastor Garrett left off last week, Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. The wall was finished in 52 days. A great work always begins with a great vision. Always begins with a great vision. And if that is true, and I believe that it is true, then I want to ask you, what vision do you see or have? I want you to think about that for a moment. Maybe take some time this week to think about that. Minus out all of the hurdles. Remove all of the obstacles and the challenges. Because a lot of times what happens when we start to think about where we would like to be next year, where we would like to be in five years or 10 years, or we see a vision of the future, what we tend to do is immediately calculate in our minds all of the problems, all of the reasons why that won't work. So I want you to think for a moment, what vision do you have of the future? One year, five years, 10 years out that you believe is the vision that is just in your heart and your mind where you would like to be. And then do your best to not add in all the obstacles, challenges, and difficulties. Minus out all the hurdles. I've been pastoring now for 23 years. And for most of the first decade of my pastoral ministry, I worked predominantly with younger people, uh, youth and young adults. I was a youth pastor for four years. And then I started teaching at a Bible college um, like 18 years ago. I taught at a Bible college for several years at the beginning of that period of time. So I worked a lot with people who were youth, junior hires, high schoolers, young adults, you know, 18 to 25 years old, just starting out in life. And many times I've had younger people say to me, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with my life. Or they'll say, I wish I knew what God's will was for my life. Maybe one of the biggest questions or the most often asked question that I received in youth ministry and as I was ministering among people that were at a college stage of life was, I wish I knew what God's will is my life or how do I determine, determine what God's will is for my life. Now, these are important existential questions. And for 23 years, I have asked the same question dozens, if not hundreds of times to people trying to navigate life at that point. I asked them this very simple question. If you could do anything that you wanted to do and nothing was standing in the way, what would you do? So again, what vision do you see or do you have? If you could do anything that you wanted to do, what would you do? Minus out all of the hurdles, obstacles, 
all of the challenges and difficulties. And if that question, if you could do anything you wanted to do, what would you do? If that question doesn't really help you to begin to isolate some sort of vision, then here's another question. Perhaps a more fundamental question. What do you see at this moment? You're sitting down watching this on your tablet, on your phone, on your TV, whatever it is, on your computer. What do you see that bothers you? What problem is standing out to you that bothers you? What do you wish was fixed? And then here's the key. What would it look like if it were fixed? You see, that, that's what Nehemiah was confronted with in Nehemiah chapter one in the month of Kislev when word came from his brothers from Jerusalem about what was going on there. Now all of a sudden he had a problem, something that bothered him. And he started to imagine what would it look like if it was fixed? And that imagination of what it would look like if it were fixed, that is a vision. And you may not have all the answers to those questions just yet, but that is how you discover a vision. And I think that it is really important. Every great work begins with a vision. And if you are going to be involved in a great work, the great work of God, it always starts with that vision. And so you've got to ask yourself these questions. If I could do anything I wanted to do and nothing was standing in the way, what would I want to do? Or what is the thing that is bothering me? What thing needs to be fixed? And, and then what would it look like if it was fixed? And it might take you some time to really think about that. But that's how you get to a vision. Now, there are a ton of intangibles, a lot of variables, a lot of unknowns between imagining the vision in Kislev and fulfilling the vision in Elul. There's a lot of things that are going to happen in that half year space or maybe even longer. A lot of intangibles, a lot of variables, a lot of unknowns between imagining that vision and fulfilling it. But you must start with the vision because a great work always begins with a great vision. And here is the crazy thing. Do you realize that the things that bother you and the vision that you have of those things being resolved and being fixed or that task being completed, it might actually take less time than you realize that it could take for it to be fixed. Notice that the scriptures say here in Nehemiah chapter six, verse 15, so it was that the wall was finished in 52 days. From the time that the refugees returned to Jerusalem until the time that Nehemiah came to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall was about 94 years. For nearly a century, the city languished. The people were disheartened. The city was in ruin. The, the obstacles and the challenges and the difficulties, they were abundant. So 94 years of the city just kind of laying in waste, them not able to get a handle on it. And then from the time that Nehemiah came to the city until the time that the wall was built and finished, 52 days. 94 years, 52 days. What changed? The people who built the wall were the same people that had occupied the city prior to Nehemiah's arrival. The city was still a mess. There's still a whole bunch of problems. The obstacles, the challenges, the difficulties, they didn't go away. So what changed? What was the major difference? I suggest to you that it was one individual, a man named Nehemiah, with a vision. A great work always begins with a great vision. 94 years, they, they accomplished very little. 52 days, just a tiny bit over seven weeks. What changed? A man with a vision. One guy, by prayer, 
and fasting, gained an optimistic vision of the future. And then it was done. He spent more time, twice as much time in prayer and fasting than he did working on the wall. Four and a half months of prayer and fasting, 52 days to build the wall. And I would suggest to you that it, it could have or even would have been accomplished in less than 52 days. But remember, as we've been looking at in the story of Nehemiah, they had enemies that were attacking them. So they had to divide up their construction force so that half of the people were defending the half that were working. So they were working, you know, part time, if you will. They weren't fully engaged in this work. They could have accomplished the building of the wall in less than 52 days. And they had enemies coming against them, attacking. They had money problems. They had all these sorts of issues and they still accomplished in seven weeks. These individuals who built the wall with Nehemiah, they were not by trade wall builders. In fact, if they had been wall builders, then the wall probably wouldn't have gotten done in such a short time because the wall builders would have told them all the ways that they wouldn't be able to get it done or couldn't get it done in that timetable. They'd tell them all the ways that this is not going to work. You see, it's, the, it's oftentimes the experts, the people who know how things are done, who discourage the work because they just go, wow, we just can't do it that way. We can't do it that way. It's not going to work that way. If you go back to Nehemiah chapter 3 and you read through it slowly, you get a list of all the people who are involved in building the wall. And you will find that the people who are building the wall, they were not masons, they were not carpenters. I mean, I'm sure they had some masons and some carpenters. I'm sure they had some people who were construction sort of people. But the people who are listed are priests and perfumers, politicians and jewelers. Th those are the kinds of people that are mentioned in that passage. Priests and perfumers, politicians and jewelers. Those were the ones who built the wall. Oftentimes God uses the unlikely, the untrained, the uninitiated to accomplish great works. In the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, we read these great words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. It's not the, the mighty, it's not the smart, it's not the strong that are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. And here's the key, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God has chosen the foolish, the base, the despised, the weak. You know what those words mean? They mean that God can use you as well. And I believe not only can God use you as well, but God wants to use you in his great work. But every great work always begins with a great vision. So what vision do you see or have? A great work always begins with a great vision. Several hundred years before the time of Nehemiah, during the time of the kings, before the northern kingdom of Jerusalem was destroyed, the Syrians, they came against the capital city of the northern kingdom of Jerusalem, the city of, or the nation of um, Israel, was divided into two kingdoms, northern, southern. So the Syrians come against the northern kingdom. And that northern kingdom is sometimes referred to as Samaria. And the capital city was Samaria. So they siege the capital city of Samaria. And the siege was so bad that the people actually turned to cannibalism in the midst of that 
horrible drama. The prophet Elisha, he saw a vision that God would deliver the city of Samaria. In spite of their sin, God was going to deliver them. And right after the prophet's prediction, we find this kind of crazy, dramatic story in the passage that talks about this in 2 Kings. We read this in 2 Kings chapter 7. I bring this up just for one small phrase. You're going to see it in a moment. 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 3, it says this. Now, there were four leprous men. So these guys had the, the disease of leprosy. Four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. They couldn't be inside the city of Samaria, so they're outside the city. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? Listen, if you, if you have a Bible, would you just underline those words? Because that's the key phrase I want to look at. Why are we sitting here until we die? Then, then they said this. If we say we will enter the city, well, the famine is in the city and we're going to die in the city of the famine. And if we sit here, we're going to die also. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. And if they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, well, we shall only die. We're, we're going to die anyway. So if they kill us, we just die quicker. And they rose at twilight to go into the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syri Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. The Syrian camp that had been laying siege to the Samaria to the city of Samaria, all the Syrians were gone. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses and the noise of a great army so that they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore, they also fled at twilight and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. Now, I'm not going to go into all the stuff about that story there in 2 Kings chapter 7. You can read it later. Uh, the only reason I, I bring it up is for that really important question that these leprous guys asked as they were sitting there as the city was under siege. Why are we just sitting here until we die? Just languishing. Listen, God has a work that he wants to do. And he wants to employ you in that work. He wants you to be involved in that work. So why sit we here until we die? Maybe it is time for you to see yourself involved in God's work. Because whether you believe it or not, or whether you realize it or not, God has called you to be a part of his work in some way, in some fashion. Now, that could be in serving in various areas here at the church, but that could be in serving in some capacity in your neighborhood. It could be that God calls you to be involved in kids ministry here at the church. It could be that he calls you to be a part of the worship team, leading worship. It might be that he calls you to, you know, be praying with people after the service. It could be that he calls you to be a part of the security of the ushers or the greeters here at the church. It could be an outreach team or a short-term mission trip that God calls you on or serving with the disaster relief program that we're connected to. It could be ministering to your neighbors or your coworkers, joining some sort of chaplaincy corps, whatever it is. And if anything, the fact that God accomplished his work with the unlikely, the untrained, the uninitiated, it, it proves that he can and will use you to do something that you don't think you could do. When I say it could be that God would call you to be a part of children's ministry. You could say, oh gosh, I could never imagine doing that, not in a million years. And yet God, he chooses the weak things of the world, the things that are unwise, the things that are just not really gifted to do great works. And he accomplishes great works through them. So we continue in the passage here in Nehemiah chapter six, verse 15. So the wall was finished in 52 days. Look at verse 16. And it happened when all our enemies heard it. We'll stop right there. All of the naysayers, 
and the antagonists. They heard the news. They, they got the tweet. They started texting each other. The wall is finished. They had conspired against the people in Jerusalem. They had mocked them. They had intimidated them. They had threatened them and terrorized them. And then they heard the news. The wall was finished in 52 days. God's great work will ultimately subvert all of his enemies. And God wants you to be involved in this subversive work. One of the most quoted Psalms in the scriptures is a prophetic word from King David in Psalm 110, where we read these words. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he is seated in a place of power and prestige at the right hand of glory. And one day he will reign over all. His enemies shall be under his feet is what Psalm 110 verse one says. And it's quoted at least a half a dozen times in the New Testament. That is an optimistic vision of the future. All those who commit injustice, all those who terrorize and mock, all those who conspire against God and his work in the world, they will be destroyed, subjugated by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The scriptures declare in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, that we shall reign with him. Now, not only will God's great work subvert all of his enemies, but we also read going on in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished in 52 days, and it happened when all our enemies heard it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were disheartened in their own eyes. God's great work will ultimately reveal the greatness of his glory to all nations. Again, the scriptures declare, every eye will see the glory of the Lord. Matthew chapter 24, verse 30 says, all the tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And all of the nations around Judah, they saw Nehemiah's victory over his mockers, his scoffers, his naysayers, his enemies. They all saw the speed at which the wall was constructed and they were humbled and they were downcast. And notice why they were disheartened. Why were they disheartened in their own eyes? The end of verse 16, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. At the end of the day, after all of the hindrances and obstacles, after nearly a century of delays, after mockery and threats, after conspiracies and terror, a group of unlikely, untrained priests and perfumers, politicians and jewelers, they completed a defensive wall around Jerusalem in seven weeks. The onlookers knew that such a feat was not only improbable, but it was impossible. And then it was done. And why was it done? Because the work was done by God. Now, at that point, you have to say, hold on a second. The work was done by God. But the work was done by Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem, right? Yes. In the same way that in the book of Judges, Gideon and his 300 men had a victory over 150,000 Midianites. 
that work was done by Gideon. But was it really done by Gideon? I mean, Gideon played a huge part in it. Gideon's 300 men played a huge part in it. Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem, they paid, played a huge part in it. Their names are listed in Nehemiah chapter 3. All these different people who worked on the wall, they all did the work. And I return to this theme often because the scriptures remind us of it regularly. God's sovereignty and human responsibility and human ingenuity, they work hand in hand. God sovereignly works through the agency of humans to accomplish his will and his plan. It is God who is working in us to willing to do his good pleasure. So the question comes, is it God who did the work or is it the people in, in Jerusalem and in Nehemiah? Is it God who's doing the work or is it me or is it you? And the answer to the question is yes. And the challenge is that the great work won't get done if God doesn't show up, but it also won't get done if you stay home. Again, I kind of quoted it a moment ago, but my favorite passage in the Bible is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It says at the end of verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. God is working. He's doing work. So you get to work. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you to will and to do his good pleasure. God is great, and he is awesome. And I am quite sure that he could accomplish his work better without me or without you. He could do quite well on his own, independently of us. And yet, in his omniscient omnipotence, he has sovereignly elected to use you. So much so, that I think it is true to say, and I realize that this is kind of a outlandish, maybe audacious claim. God's great work is ultimately hindered only by me. His great work is only ultimately hindered by me, or I say me, but you should say me when you write that down, if you write it down. It's only ultimately hindered by you and me. And again, I know there are some that will hear that and really be bothered by it theologically, and I'm pretty fine with any sort of pushback because it is an audacious and kind of outlandish claim, but I think it's probably true. What is holding you back? What is hindering you from engaging in the great work that God has prepared for you? Maybe you see all of the obstacles, all the intangible problems. You're calculating in your mind all the reasons why it can't happen. Do you realize that your hindrances are hindering God's work from getting done? You, you say in your mind, I, I just can't. I'm not smart enough talented enough, big enough, rich enough, strong enough, well-connected and networked enough to do this or that. Great theologian, Martin Luther, one of the important names in the Reformation 500 years ago. He said, of whom shall I be afraid? One with God is a majority. You, empowered and enabled by God, just as Gideon's army was against the Midianites, just as Nehemiah was with the city of Jerusalem as they rebuilt the wall, one with God is a majority. God empowers us to accomplish great things. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you to will and to do his good pleasure. God uses unlikely outsiders to accomplish great works for which those unlikely outsiders are untrained and underprepared to execute. Nehemiah teaches us that it is often the unlikely, the untrained, and the underprepared who accomplish such great works because they don't know what they don't know. And therefore, they are able to do it in, they're able to do in seven weeks what the know-it-alls couldn't accomplish in a hundred years. 
This story, the, the book of Nehemiah, it reminds us that God has a work that he wants to accomplish and his plan requires your engagement. Something to think about, something I hope you'll take some time to think about this week. Don't be a spectator. Get in the game. God wants you to be a part of his work. It begins with a vision. It begins with you kind of setting aside all the distractions, turning off social media, turning off the news media, spending some time with the Lord and asking that question. If I could do anything I wanted to do and nothing was standing in the way, what would I do? Or what is the thing that's really bothering me? What is that thing that I wish were fixed? And then praying and maybe fasting and asking the Lord, Lord, help me to have a vision and help me to move forward in faith. Father God, I pray that you would do a work in us, that this story from Nehemiah would challenge us and encourage us, that you are the one who takes the unlearned, the untrained, the uninitiated, the underprepared, and you empower and equip us and send us out to do things that we could not do on our own without you so that you get the glory. Just as 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, so that no flesh will glory in your presence. God, you get the glory in our lives. All the nations round about saw and proclaimed this work was done by God. God, work in your people, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>